Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 26, verses 1 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled Human and Divine Will. Over the next several weeks, I'm going to be examining everything Matthew says about Jesus' brutal death as well as his resurrection. Matthew, the author of his book, is not a historical researcher, nor is he a writer of fantasy or fiction. Matthew was an eyewitness of the things he writes about. Or as the Greek called a witness, Matthew, he was a martyr. You see, the Greek word marturion does not refer to someone who dies for something, but rather to someone who bears witness of something. A marturian testifies truthfully of what they have seen. A marturian is a faithful witness. He sets aside his own agenda as well as what he'd like to say and he'd like to teach. Instead, he, as it were, disappears from our view, and what appears are the images that his own eyes have seen. Matthew writes about what he saw. It's not about what Matthew did. It's about what someone else did. You know, I have for some time believed that Matthew did more than witness the life, death, and burial, resurrection of Jesus. Because Matthew was a Levite, trained in scribal techniques, and because he was also for a time a Roman tax collector, trained to keep accurate notes of all that he did. So it seems likely to me that Matthew kept notes of what he saw in the Jesus event. Great many Bible scholars have noticed the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and have, I think rightly, thought that those three writers had access to a common source document or a set of notes that was available to all of them. You know, in my mind, Matthew is the most likely author of that Aramaic set of notes that Mark and Luke also accessed. You know, I also think it likely that Matthew's notes were available to all the apostles. Now, if I'm right about that, you know, in that case, the book of Matthew is putting his notes into a manuscript and then shaping it in order to tell the story as best he could without losing any of the historical accuracy of the actual events. And and that's what we've got in that book. And that's Matthew's role. He's an eyewitness of the death of Jesus. And when we read the book of Matthew, we should be assured that this is really what happened when Jesus died. We're about to embark on a study of Matthew chapters 26 to 28, the last three chapters of his book. Of course, as we know, Matthew's not the only one who recorded these momentous events. Mark recorded them, and he wrote them down on behalf of Peter. Luke was a consummate historian who interviewed all the eyewitness of these events and also wrote them down. And John, the youngest of the apostles, is also an eyewitness, and he wrote his own account after the other three had already written theirs. And John's peculiar emphasis is to stress those things about Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection that had not been included in the other three accounts. So all in all, we have in in the four accounts a full and comprehensive recounting of Jesus. In my study of Matthew, I'm going to concentrate specifically on what Matthew said, but I may make reference to the other three at different points in time. But our task is also to enter deeply into the crucifixion of Jesus. We want to see it through Matthew's eyes, so let's begin to do just that, shall we? So for today, let's begin with Matthew's introduction to this event, and here I'm reading Matthew 26, verses 1 to 5. 
When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Notice that we begin the story of the crucifixion of Jesus with these words, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, it might be that Matthew's referring to the fact that, you know, Jesus had just completed a teaching about his second coming. And we now refer to that teaching as the Olivet Discourse. So in the previous two chapters in Matthew, that is in chapters 24 and 25, we have recorded an extended teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples about the destruction of the temple, about the devastation of Jerusalem, and then going beyond that to the worldwide missionary evangelism of the church, to the persecution of Christ's followers, then to the end of the world, and then to his second coming. You see, all this makes sense. You see, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, all these teachings, however, Matthew might also be signaling something else here. You see, throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew has recorded not one, but five separate extended teachings of Jesus. That started with his famous Sermon on the Mount. That's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And then, as I've mentioned, it ends with the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Matthew has been meticulous. Not only is he telling us what Jesus did, he also wants to tell us what Jesus has been teaching. But now in the beginning of chapter 26, Matthew signals us that the teaching ministry of Jesus is over. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, meaning when Jesus had finished his teaching ministry, see, that chapter of his life and ministry is now behind him. He's turned a corner. Things aren't going to be the same. After Jesus had finished all these sayings, after Jesus had finished teaching, after the instruction of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven had drawn to a close, After Jesus walked through a door and his past ministry is now behind him, Matthew says Jesus is now at that point. And from now on, his opportunities, you know, to get on a hill and teach the masses is over. It wouldn't return. Matthew's also indicating that Jesus is ever aware that he's responding to the timing of the Father. Jesus is not like some of us, you know, grieving for a period of life that won't come back. You know, that period when he was popular. And when the crowds showed up from everywhere to hear him preach, when everyone sang his praises, Jesus isn't longing for the good old days to come back. So stop and make application. You know, there are some of us, perhaps you're one of them, and you've never gotten beyond what you perceive to have been the good old days in your life. You remember there was a day when the sun shone down on you and everything you did was successful and well-received. And perhaps those were the days, you know, you know, when your children were young, or perhaps, you know, those were the days before you lost that job of your dreams, or, you know, perhaps those were the days before, you know, your health condition manifested itself, or, you know, perhaps those were the days before your marriage began to sour, or perhaps even those were the days before, you know, your child died. Now your mourning has never ceased. It goes on for years, and it's become the defining moment of your life. But those good old days not only did not last, they couldn't last. For as the songwriter has said, change and decay and all around I see. Now this world is passing away, and for some of us, those good and pleasant days never came back. 
And since then, you've fallen into bitterness and resentment. Those around you, you know, can never have a conversation with you without you mentioning the, the transition and the disappointment and the loss. And what follows is a life of disillusionment. Look, I don't want to minimize your pain. And I certainly don't want to minimize the sin that devastates so many lives. But I want us to look at Jesus, see how he embarked on that period of his life when he had finished all these sayings, when the door closed and Jesus' teaching ministry was over and all that was left for him was the unbridled hatred of his enemies resulting in his sufferings. Take a look at what happened. So where do we start? Notice that Jesus is ever aware that everything he's doing is in line with the Father's will for him. Now see that in Matthew 16, 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, Jesus isn't trying, as some do, to maximize his potential, grab his best life now, hang on to some ideal of what the good life looks like. Jesus is only acting aware of the Father's plan for his life. And here's some insight that might help you if you're yearning for a better time. Adopt Romans 8.28 as one of your life's verses. God causes all things to work together for the good. And here Paul means for the eternal good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Look even at all the evil things that occur and discern the eternal will of the Father for your life. Embrace the Father's providential designs for you. Remember to bless the Lord when there is great, seemingly unbearable pain in your life. I'm aware that the Father plans something for Jesus that is unique to Jesus. Nevertheless, we pass over this section far too quickly if we don't do some introspection. Would you be content in your life, the whole of it, if it's lived only in obedience to the Father? You should be content in that. And should it be that the Father's will for your life that you should enter into a period of suffering, be content in this, for this is your Father's plan for you. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, this phase of his ministry is now behind him. He knows the cross is immediately before him. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16. But sometimes, the things we think we know lose our attention. If you be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Newfeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 316. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for his glory. Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month for free. So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Seeing that the cross is before him, Jesus speaks to his disciples. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. Now, technically, Jesus and his disciples were already in Jerusalem celebrating Passover. You know, Matthew 21 records Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the day we now call Palm Sunday. 
A great deal has already transpired all during the festivity of what is called Passover. But Jesus is referring to eating the Passover lamb. You know, according to Exodus 12, verse 6, the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which was to be the day in which the entire community of Israel was to kill their Passover lambs, and they would always be on a Thursday because, you know, they're operating on a lunar calendar. And so when Jesus says that after two days the Passover is coming, we know he would have said that on a Tuesday. You know, by Thursday evening, they would be eating the Passover together, and then on Friday, the next day, he would be crucified. And Jesus is aware that he stands on the brink of crucifixion. It's now only three days away. And although Jesus had made this plain to his disciples before, they had been incapable of grasping that. I mean, go back to Matthew 16, and we read that when Jesus first made it quite plain. He was rebuked by none other than Peter himself. Peter had said, it'll never be. And Jesus had responded by saying that it was none other than Satan himself who had inspired Peter to say that. It was a satanic plot to get Jesus to turn back from the cross. Get behind me, Satan, he says. But now as he stands on the brink of his crucifixion on this Tuesday, Again, as plainly as he can, he tells his disciples, we are two days away from eating the Passover. And then right after that, he says, the Son of Man will be crucified. Notice also the very specific words that Jesus uses. The ESV uses the words, the Son of Man will be crucified. But the grammar, the grammar is in the present passive indicative. That literally is translated, the Son of Man is is delivered up to be crucified. So why do I even point that out? Well, I do so because some grammarians call this the prophetic present tense. I mean, that's to say there are times in our Bible when a prophet is going to speak about a future event, and that prophet will speak about that event in the present tense. Indeed, there are even times when a prophet's going to speak about a future event in the past tense. I mean, they do it to give the impression that what God has planned for in the future is as if it had already happened. You know, in the case of the present tense, as if it was happening right now. We're supposed to get the sense that the plans of God have been laid down already and nothing is going to alter future events. But here Jesus doesn't speak about it in the past or in the future, but in the present. He means to say this handing over to be crucified is right now. I've been handed over by the plan of God. My fate is sealed. It's done. And I have embraced the Father's plan. Again, I mention this because if you'll allow me, let me quickly go ahead to verse 5. While Jesus was saying that it was fixed, there was no way to change the plans of God, that all things were set in the mind of God. Well, verse 5 tells us that the plans of the chief priests and elders were different. See, verse 5 says that they also had a plan. They would not murder Jesus during the feast of the Passover. That is, if you had asked the Jewish religious authorities if Jesus was to be crucified on a Friday, they would have informed you that that was definitely not going to happen. Not during the feast, they would say. We have this matter well in hand, they would have said. We're not going to risk Jesus' death in causing an uproar, and we're not going to risk him becoming a popular hero who even though he's dead, never goes away. No, no, we're planning something else. So let me add a side note. You know, every once in a while, scholars are going to argue, you know, why the Jewish leaders insisted that the crucifixion of Jesus be done by the Romans. You know, much has been made about the fact 
that the Jews didn't have the right to put anyone to death. Well, that's true. They didn't. But we also know that later, in the case of the stoning of Stephen, the Jewish religious leaders led the way to a mob justice in the streets, and apparently the Romans paid very little attention to that event. And so at least, say the critics, something seems wrong in the crucifixion account. You know, there are countless ways to put Jesus to death without a public phenomenon of a Roman crucifixion. Why would they do that? You see, that critique, however, fails to take into account the actual historical situation. Jesus was forcing the hand of the religious leaders. Yeah, they might have decided to put Jesus to death when the crowds were gone, but that choice was effectively taken out of their hands. Jesus had already ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crowds had proclaimed him as the long-expected Messiah. And then the next day, well, he had knocked over the tables of the money changers, and he proclaimed, my house shall be a house of prayer. See, that was shocking. Not that the, you know, the temple should be a house of prayer. That's not shocking. But rather, he called the temple my house. In effect, he was making himself equal with God. And the religious leaders, well, they wouldn't let that stand. They couldn't. And so it becomes ever more clear, especially since Matthew has already told us in you know, chapters 21 to 23 that Tuesday, this Tuesday, had been a day of raging controversies, a battle of wits, if you will, between Jesus and the religious leaders. There before the watching and adoring crowds, Jesus had bested one religious leader after another. Not only did he answer their questions well, but he put questions back to them, and they were unable to answer. He made them look foolish. If this goes on, I hope you see it. Well, then the people are leaving the religious teachers, and their loyalty is clearly with Jesus. They can't let that happen. And if that were not enough, by the time we get to Matthew chapter 23, while Jesus, after the dispute between you know, him and the religious leaders, was now over, so Jesus then addresses the crowds, and he tells them in very clear terms, the religious teachers are hypocrites, they're blind men, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And if that weren't enough, he tells the crowds that it was men just like those men that murdered the innocent prophets of God in the past, and the crowd hung on every word. See, it's clear the religious teachers couldn't allow that to simply play itself out and wait to murder him later. Every day, that appeared to be less an option than the day before. They couldn't have, like later they did with Stephen, stoned him in the streets of Jerusalem. It's unlikely. They could even have accomplished that. The crowds might have turned on them. And by now, the matter was way beyond control. The only option left was to involve Rome and bring an army with such brutal force that no one dared to stand up for Jesus. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why the chief priests and elders never got their way to kill him by stealth. I hope you see the drama in Matthew 26, 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That that was the plan. But Jesus, for his part, as we've seen, has told his disciples in the present tense, no less, that the Son of Man is delivered up to be crucified. That's it. It's the contrast between those two perspectives that's really important here. It has to do with the best plans of human beings and with the settled and determined plan of God. Human beings and our plans never win the battle. The cross tells us that God's will is done. 
And that reality leads us to what all of the scripture says. You know, for instance, Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's to say, we might determine, you know, plans and objectives and goals for the future, our hearts, meaning our affections, the things we love and want, the plans that we have and how we're going to arrive at them. But the Lord establishes our steps or the Lord at each point in time determines where every footstep will fall to the ground. As footstep is added to footstep, we soon see where the footsteps lead us. For a great many people, the end of the journey is very different than the destination they had in mind. And the reason for that is that sometimes, unbeknownst to us, God has determined that little patch of ground where each footstep comes down. You know, for years I kept an old saying at my computer workstation. It simply said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. I never saw that saying as a a reason not to plan or or not to live my life deliberately or or to fail to have goals in mind. I, I think the person who, you know, just chooses to drift along in life without goals is really just a fool. We are to be people of deliberation, but God's plans always triumph over ours. That's especially true of those who plan evil things as the chief priests and elders did. And that brings us back to where we began. It's necessary for us not to grieve for those things that we lose or those things that change our lives. That's the very thing the chief priests and religious teachers didn't do. Thanks for your message, John. It's going to be a great series. Uh, Let me ask you this. You know, I remember an expression saying, man plans and God laughs. Now, I'm not sure God laughs at our plans, but I do think it says something about our need to have confidence that God is at work even when our plans don't work out. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I like that that saying, Ben. I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, whenever we think that we are God, and here I think that whenever we say, you know, whatever I plan is going to happen, yeah, I think God does mock that idea because only God holds the beginning and the end together. And so we have to come to terms that God's divine will is always done in the end. We are not God. He is God. Uh, In the end of the day, his will will stand and ours will fail. So let's get used to right now uh, bending the knee and accepting his will. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we hear from listeners across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Mason recently wrote, I really appreciate that you teach the Bible, straightforward, no mincing of words, as it is, and so informative. You know, we're grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your generous support to help extend this program's reach across the nation to resource Canadians with trustworthy Bible teaching. It's a privilege to stand with like-minded and like-hearted individuals who share the steadfast commitment to see others engaged in a dynamic relationship with Jesus, grounded in biblical truth. Your donations are absolutely pivotal in fulfilling Back to the Bible Canada's mission, and we're so blessed by your partnership. 
To give today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.